You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. We've got the kiln fired up. We've got the furnace prepped. We're about to unsheath the laser fire of Torah. Yes, Rizcha Daraisa is coming your way. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic, and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company. And they truly stand by their product and they'll help you with live stateside based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. If it's Erev Shabbos Kodesh, this must be I'm here with Rabbi Yosef Gabriel Bechofel. Uh, Rabbi Yosef, hot off the press, no big surprise. Robert Bowers, the tree of life Pittsburgh killer, has been found guilty of many, many counts of intentional homicide and hate crimes for the horrendous, terrible attack, the worst anti-Semitic attack in the United States history on the tree of life synagogue. But of course, there was a lot of damning evidence from the various sites that he would visit, the various right-wing anti-Jewish hate sites. And there was hours and hours of testimony from the survivors. I have to tell you, although I don't know if this, it was televised in the Pittsburgh area or on court TV, but if you do have a subscription to Max, which is HBO's streaming service, you can see the Trish 806 documentary, which came out last fall about the Tree of Life shooting. I think we commented at the time on Rabbi Adarit's statement, right, didn't we? Rabbi Adarit, who said that they deserved it. Boy, I have to go back to our archives. Did some idiot say something like that? Yeah, a distinguished rabbi called Rabbi Adarit. We'll figure with the following. He said they deserved it because they are fry and they, they endorsed homosexuality. Well, we know that this was a, like a, it was a, a three congregations inhabited the building. None, well, none of them were, none of them were Orthodox. None of them were thriving. Either way, most of the attendees uh, were of advanced years. <laughs> it was not uh, young firebrands who were aggressively trying to change the world. But yes, they were people of a very liberal stripe. And if you watch the documentary, you can hear some of their opinions. Obviously, in the light of their sacrifice, those the, their philosophies are rendered in a very sympathetic way. They were, you know, obviously aligned with the refugee movements, they were very much against uh, Donald Trump. And part of what the film indicates that when Trump came to visit, there were people who didn't want him to visit and they felt he had no right, as if somehow Trump was responsible for Bowers uh, uh, arising. And I think, 
I'm going to be cynical here, and it's not really so ultra cynical. Part of the reason why the New York Times and others feel that this is a bombshell story, because once again, reinforces the idea that the worst type of threat we have is from right-wing extremists. And as we know, anti-Semitic attacks have been happening, although not in such a way. They've been happening for years, and in many ways, not necessarily from the right but happening from others as well, not just from a right-wing neo-Nazi type of person. Well, the, the, of course, the right-wing is more more dangerous because they have guns. Left-wing don't have guns. Uh, look, they have SUVs. They have other things that they could use. And the tree of life killing fit in neatly into that narrative. Other sorts of events of Jews that have been knocked around and beaten up by members of the black community in New York have not gotten much of a uh, of a treatment at all in the press, or as we know, the type of things that were going on, whether it's Muslims against Jews. These are things which we do not hear so much about. Still, I think it's, it's worthwhile to speak about Pittsburgh, because I think uh, 806 f- film brings out the achdus in the community. It brings out how all members of the community came together uh, to support the first responders, and even before the first responders, the the non-Jewish custodians who worked in the in the synagogue. His story is so moving, including, I believe, uh, the Jewish doctor who actually worked on Bowers in the hospital to save the guy's life. It really, is, you know, Pittsburgh is is a proud town. It's a town that uh, went through could have been called a decline because of the the steel industry was so prominent. And then, of course, as steel production decreased and moved overseas, uh, it reinvented itself. And it's a place now for high tech and other things. But the, you know, the community is really a, a, a old, solid Jewish community that, despite the fact that it's hundreds of miles from the heart beating of New York, can really, it can attest for itself pretty well. I, I think that the, uh, one of the most moving things about Pittsburgh's response was, as you know, I know you're not a, you're only a hockey fan, but you realize the Pittsburgh Steelers are a very prominent team. And of course, the Monday night game, I believe it was after the shooting, they changed their logo to have the Mug and David along with it. So the Steelers logo was blended with the Mug and David, indicating how their unity with the Jewish community, the owners, the Rooney family, uh, spoke so movingly about uh, the importance of the Jewish community. So it, 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 it's, it's a weird segue here, but it sort of reminds me about the homogeneous aspect of an out-of-town life. And Pittsburgh is perhaps a little bit larger and a little more prominent. Rebiesev Gavrio, you have been sort of visiting some of these out-of-town hamlets that have Jewish life, and you haven't been visiting them because you just want to write a travelogue. You've been visiting them because they have called on you, you and your wife, to spread the wisdom, to uh, encompass the listeners with the wisdom that you are such a fount of uh, as a scholar in residence. And although that term is bandied about now to include people that I don't even know if they could spell the word scholar, you and your wife went to Scranton, Pennsylvania. And you were also in um, in New Rockney territory, of course, South Bend, Indiana, home, of course, of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, but also uh, home to a very interesting Jewish community. Uh, let me let me turn let me turn the table first, and then you can turn it back to me. 
You grew up in a community of this sort, Memphis. When you were growing up, did you think Memphis had any future? Growing up in Memphis, which for years I thought was a handicap because I wasn't able to be part of such a rich, you know, incredible, strong school system where everybody there is learning Mishnayas at four or five or six and et cetera. But being part of a sort of homogeneous community where we had some religious kids, some kids who didn't keep Shabbos and some kids who would never keep Shabbos and some kids were on the way and boys and girls, we talked about it a little bit last week. So I was a member of a community that I know that probably my perspective and ability to be inclusive comes from the fact that I come from Memphis. I feel that having been raised the way I was gave me a understanding and a sensitivity and a naturalness to people who were different. And that different. may be true. I know, know that about that. But I'm asking a more specific question here. You know, as you saw Aaron Hirsch and the Anshe Spire emptying out and the neighbor going to the to the dogs, wherever it went, and so you were, I think you wanted the last families to leave the old neighborhood, if I recall correctly? Right. Yes, definitely, definitely, let me put it this way. The last families, there were loners, widowers, drunkards. <laughs> were drunk, there were drunkards. I mean, we were able to somehow find Jewish DNA contained, but a family with a father and a mother and children, yes, we were the strange people who were living in a neighborhood that was crumbling around me, yes. Right, so didn't it feel like there was no future in Memphis, or did you say, no, it's going to thrive in the new location and everything is going to be fine, and it's going to be Irva Amy's role? Remember, see, you're asking me two questions. This could really be a question for people who are living in the Bronx as well. This question can be asked for people who lived in the South Bronx. The people in the South Bronx, which had a rich Jewish community in the Pelham Parkway area and others that really disintegrated and they had to move, did they ever believe that those areas would ever uh, come back? But they knew that up in Yonkers or in Riverdale, they knew that new life was happening. And, and I think when I was a, a, a child, I knew that there was a wealthier area, a better homed area where friends and other people from school were. I, and I, and the truth is that area where I lived is finished and never, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just a place that uh, just like the pinch, the old community area in Memphis near the river is also just a place where tour guides will take you and say, Hey, this is where the Jews used to be. And this building used to be a mikvah. And th- that's true in many, many communities throughout the United States. The, uh, the other question is, did I ever view Memphis as a place where I'm going to grow up and live here? And the answer is no. And, uh, and the reason is, is because, although, you know, I, I sort of appreciated that there were others from other types of people, I was, I, I was convinced that the real Judaism was somewhere else. And part of it was because I had to go to yeshiva somewhere else, right? You're not going to stay here. But why didn't I stay in the Memphis Yeshiva? We knew that was sort of like a, a triple-A club compared to going to the major leagues. Going well, to the triple-A is being kind, isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, we knew it was a Yeshiva. We knew there was something. Also, it had, a again, I, again it's years. I, maybe time allows me to say this. It had a certain cultist aspect to it. And and as, as much as going to Nary Yisrael was, was, was probably, and I would, I, if I could go back in time, I would, I would have told my father to send me someplace else 
But going to Nerys Row was definitely going to the big leagues. It was a horrible big leagues. It was a horrible version of the big leagues, but it was the big leagues. And going to and, and, and discovering all these New Yorkers and, and people from that area, it was able. I was able to realize there was a big aspect of Judaism I had missed. Now, many of my my co-Memphians went on a similar path and are scattered all over New York and New Jersey and Baltimore and, and other places, and it didn't go back. But many stayed. And in fact, something else occurred, which gets us back to, to Scranton and South Bend, is that things started happening about 25 years ago or 30 years ago, where people from metropolis areas began going to places like this. Now, why did that occur? Even before COVID, where people said, we got to get out of New York, it occurred because the major reason is because of the inability to uh, pay the huge amounts of tuition to Jewish schools and the inability to earn enough money to be able to send a large family, even four or five or six children, to a day school. It was almost impossible. And in a big city. In a big city. And the OU and other organizations, Young Israel and the OU, felt, let's search out places. Atlanta, Dallas, those were the two places that, again, there was a lot of infrastructure that was that was developed. And as you know, both of these places have Rabbonim, Yeshivas, Kalilim. Dallas and, and Atlanta, although when I was growing up, they were backwater towns compared to Memphis, they got an infusion back of people of great Shiri Kalilim, like Yerachmiel Fried, uh, people of incredible charisma and power, like David Silverman. These were people who were now going to go back, some of them leaving Eretz Yisrael, like Yerachmiel did, in order to come to Dallas, to come to Atlanta, and start real community coil. And I, and I, and, and really to be able to make a tremendous difference and also to bring people from the metropolitan areas there. Memphis, which for years dwarfed Atlanta and Dallas as a religious city. And we talked about Ravnota and his influence didn't necessarily receive that type of interest. I think what also when this is true about many small towns, I think the existing structure in Memphis, like the fact there was yeshiva in the south, all that probably inhibited progress. In Memphis, there was a lot of bit of pride in the synagogues, pride in the school, and in the you know triple A yeshiva that they had developed. That you couldn't just come into town like Rav. Bikamotza, like it talks about Rav coming to Sura and he's able to build something. There's a reason why Rav didn't go to Narada. It, it wasn't just because he didn't want to elbow Shmuel out. There's a reason why the Chazanish went specifically to B'nai Brachanat Yerushalayim. There's a reason why they went there is because they didn't have to elbow out anything existing. Dallas and Atlanta had so little that new shuls and yeshivas and seminaries could thrive there. And people coming from New York and coming from the, the, that area wouldn't be necessarily perceived as carpetbaggers descending on a town that didn't really belong to them. You know, the golden little era of Ravnota's yeshiva 
was sort of like an inkling that Chafetz Chaim can now come in, a young Israel, which had never been in Memphis before, uh, now has a very strong presence. Obviously, Memphis is not ready for an Aguda. Right. So Aguda had to morph into a young Israel, yes. Right. Yes. But again, one of the main shoals closed down. So it, it really, sometimes you need a collapse in order to build upon it. And I want to say, so, uh, you know, even in as big a city as Chicago, we know that an impediment to Chicago's growth has been the cabal of nursing home owners. So, Alachas Kama Bakama, in other words, in a small town where you have a single, a single or a few dominant families, that that's going to inhibit the possibility for growth. It's, para- it's always a paradox because without those machers, you're not going to bring in your initial people. So they're always, and, and since they're so crucial, the, the people that come in have to pass muster with them. Otherwise, they won't be able to be supported. So, but I think Memphis now is, is flying with its Chafetz Chaim coil. I think Chafetz Chaim ends up being a, a very happy medium. It's not necessarily a Torah Mitzion town, you know, that's going to have like, you know, the, the, the sort of like rah-rah, Eretz Yisrael, Uberalis, but Chafetz Chaim seems to be where it should be, which is sort of like a pshora between the old traditional strength of Memphis and to be somewhat forward-looking. But it's time to go over the yeshiva in the south also? They didn't take over the yeshiva, but they work in tandem with the yeshiva. They they learn there a couple of days a, a week. There is a beautiful base medrash stacked with svarim there that now Baruch Hashem is getting used by the, the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva and the Yungalite and uh, the Roshi Koilo. They're coming out with Chiburim and Kontresim, etc. So that's the Memphis story, at least the way I have, again, my ear, I'm not in Memphis often, but this is what I understand. But what's interesting is, is that I never thought, okay, now I'm going to go back. You know what I'm saying? Okay, now it's time to go. Some of my cousins stayed. But many of my cousins left. And I think that's really uh, the, the phenomenon. But where I think all of us, if we get together, say we are who we are because we were an out-of-town. Uh, well, of course, yes. Out-of-towners. You know, we were out-of-towners. You know, I always tell this story over, you know, Rabbi Freyam has a daughter, Mashi, and she's married to Loser Lansom. Um, They had 15 children. And, you know, he's a, he's, he's a guy never, she's a tremendous balaskes in, 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 in Yerushalayim. So I remember when I went to visit Eretz Yisrael with my, with my uh, father, uh, in 1992, and I'm in Harnaif, and I'm walking in one of these, you know, the labyrinth streets or whatever it was, high tide or whatever it was. And I hear in a, in a, in a feminine high pitched voice, Abraimo, Abraimo. Hey, how you doing? And there was Robert Froyam's daughter. And I turned around and said, Mashi, is that you? And then, of course, we ran up the stairs and we sat there. We talked. That can only happen. And you talked about, you know, your you, last week with your connections to your, 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 your female members of your sniff. In Memphis, we were all part of the same cradle. We all were there together. And when we see each other, there isn't a, a, a sense at all of impropriety. When we see, when I see the old Memphis girls, Memphis boys, when we all see each other, old men and women and grandparents and great grandparents, we all come together at weddings now and we say, as much as we didn't get it, we, Memphis formed us. We were blessed. A fellow who was a, um, the most Southern 
Jew you could find. He didn't speak a word of Yiddish. He was a a Southern gentleman, an or, a fellow who came to Orthodoxy, I think, in midlife. And he was best friends with my dad. You know, he, you know, he didn't speak a word of Yiddish. He was the most genteel fellow. You could expect him to be an extra in Vaughn with the wind, right? And here he was, friends with my dad, who looked like he could have been an extra from Schindler's List. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> right, right, and here they were, they were talking and friendly, et cetera, right? You know, and, and, and when this fellow needed a big loan from the banks, my father came to the bank and co-signed for him. This is the way things were. The 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 sense of social structures was so elastic, was so different. And it was sometimes a shock to the system for people like myself and other out-of-towners to get used to the new rules, right, of tablecloths and yarmulkes and certain styles of dress and certain looks and what the show was like. So so I think that that we 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 were empowered. But I think all our listeners who were, grew up out of town sort of can relate to what I'm talking about. And I think part of it is the dependency that that we have for each other. When you know the community is small, so the woman who in New York would just be a regular balabusta who would be going to G and Sons, in this community, she's the mitzvah lady. And she's someone who, who, who makes the Shabbos runs and picks kids up and, and, and from places where when they're stranded. Whereas... When you're in a, a large community, that's done by whoever the Roshiakal decide. And I think there is something about knowing when you come to a community, whether it's Rochester, whether it's even Las Vegas in some ways, you know that you are going to be an important link, the dynamism of the place. So you mentioned Rochester. So I think we should compare those three cities because I was in all three recently, Rochester, Scranton, and, uh, and, and South Bend. Uh, South Bend. So all these places have yeshivas. And each of the yeshivas, I think, had different ashbah, a different way. Uh, I think that um, in uh, in Rochester, the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva has actually uh, built up the community in a significant way, which is uh, positive. It, it's it's meshed with the community. It's, because it's integrated, and uh, the, the people go back and forth from the shul to the yeshiva and so on and so forth. The South Bend Yeshiva, was met was part of this new phenomenon of like a place that's we need a building away from the matting crowd and we're sort of going to it's sort of like a kids who need a little more uh, a softer touch kids who need a little more empowerment they might not have put that in their mission statement but i think that's what right. the was yeah. meant to be Right. Today, those yeshivas are dotting all over New Jersey, all over Lakewood in various places. Right. They're all over the place. I, yeah, I, I think that it would have been, something happened in South Bend with the Gettingers, who were, you know, the original Robin Rosh Yeshiva, and there was a lot of turmoil when they left many years. In my, my okay, so time. I'm going to say it again, is that the Rosh Yeshiva, who was, again, the Robin Rosh Yeshiva were also very different. I got along, I, 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 I spent a number of Shabbos with the yeshiva in South Bend because I used to vacation about 35 minutes from the yeshiva, Potato Creek State Park. But I used to spend Shabbos in South Bend with the yeshiva and the shul. It was all in the same building and it was all funded by yeah. one big balabas that you, you talked about, the Lermans. The Rosh Yeshiva was a Chaim Berliner, a Starker. His father, of course, Manny Gettinger, was a, 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 really an Ely. And uh, the Adem, of course, of <laughs> of my grandfather's 
Harusa for a while, Rabbi Naftali Tzirif, rabbi of, in Camden, New Jersey. But part of what they ran the yeshiva a little bit like, we are, even though it was really a yeshiva for Nitzrachim, the yeshiva was sort of the, the, the face that they had and what the Rosh Hashiva wanted was, you know, we are the Rosh Hashiva, like, and we're, this is Slavodka and Panovich and Velozh. I think that was part of the reason why it was somewhat of a mismatch. But because, because of the Yungalite and the yeshiva, there was a need to build a day school, right? The day school needed to be uh, built up a little bit and very many dedicated teachers. And they had a girls' high school. A lot of things came about as a result. But I think that the, the, the South Bend, the alumni of the high school, like in Rochester, they, they didn't, this is all probably because it's only a high school. They didn't actually come populate the community. They, they saw it as a place that their parents sent them because they needed, they needed something a little different. However, the, there is now a community that wanted Rabbi, Bech, Rabbi and Shani Bechhoffer's services. Who were that? Who's the, who, what, which community is that? Well, there's the uh, people who are somewhat dissatisfied with the uh, the uh, Hebrew Orthodox congregation, the old shul, and how should I put it, the um, interbreeding? I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, the, the, the clan-like atmosphere, which uh, was personified old South Bend. And uh, they wanted to have their own halach uh, and things. Initially started off as a Balchuba uh, shul, but then it became for a lot of different people who have uh, different types of uh, perspectives. And it also, I would assume it also, because of Chicago overflow and because of the inability to, to afford, maybe there were families that moved to South Bend for that reason. Well, we, we know that there were several, uh, several of our uh, associates in uh, Hebrew Theological College, such as uh, Corporal Lindau and David Abraham, they're Balabati in in, um, in uh, this couple Linda is the president of this shul, the second shul. South Bend offered for them a place where you know they could replicate a lot of the, the the mindset that they had as yeshiva guys in Chicago on a small scale where they could have significance and importance and right. contribute and build something. Right. Which is very, very which is very important. And I think that that is manifest. I think that they are very uh Abraham unfortunately had a stroke. Do you, so do you see South Bend having a growth spurt like Dallas or I, think I don't know if it's having a growth spurt because they, in order to have a growth spurt nowadays, you have to have a community coilo. It doesn't work so well without one, but uh, they have definitely a vibrancy. So I'm not sure growth is the term, but vibrancy it has is a positive vibe. And they're trying to work on growth. They're trying to get a community coilo. It's uh, hopefully the vibrancy will lead to significant growth. Right now it's still a, a backwater to a certain extent. So, so now let's talk about Scranton. Now, Scranton. Scranton also the yeshiva came in, and its yeshiva is obviously very yeshivish, right? And the community, part of the community, is yeshivish as a result, or at least sympathetic to being yeshivish. And part of the community was shut out. So there are people who uh, the, the, the Scranton Day School became very yeshivish. But they were yeshivas who started Scranton were Bechire, Talmide, Ravara. They were very stark, uh, Schneidman and others. I mean, they are, I mean, you go into that base medrash, I mean, the svarim, the attitude, the, the, the musky smell. I mean, you definitely get, uh, th- this is no Chafetz Chaim. 
This is a yeshiva that, uh, and even even though it was also meant for out of town for people who New Yorkers who wanted to send out of town and to have a certain warmth, I have to tell you, I spent the Shabbos in the Scranton yeshiva. I thought I was in Ghanaian, and I'd been in Eretz where the the they called the, where you couldn't speak. I mean, now it's from Tzvi Berkowitz gives me big hugs and talks to me, and Ephraim Margaretna was a Rishkoel in Cleveland. Um, you know, but they were in, in Aries Row, they were ensconced in the head table. And I think I've spoken about this how you couldn't even get close. And Scranton, I came there for a Shabbos, and everybody is talking, and they're, they're even, they're even sitting with each other and say, come sit on the Kumsitz. And these older guys, it was, it, it was really, and the people, it's very warm place. It's very warm place. Yes. And, and, and many of the Scranton alumni, as you, as we both know, uh, they are extremely supportive of keeping that yeshiva going, but they aren't living in Scranton. Right, they aren't. They aren't moving back to Scranton. I don't know. I I think that a Lakewood yeshiva, by definition, is going to have some friction with the community in which it's it's placed, um, because uh, by definition, they they have the elitist perspective, even even if it's the, so to speak, the AAA Lakewood yeshiva, they they still see themselves as major leagues, regardless of where they are, and uh, therefore it's not going to have the same ashpa. On the general community and bring it up or bring people back to live there. Of course, since you have Kailo Yungalai and they have children, they have to have Mechanchen, so there's a certain uh, nucleus of Klei Kodesh which will come about. On the other hand, another thing the Scranton Yeshiva did is that they, they because they're there, there's no pizza store in Scranton. Because they know a pizza store is, 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 is hangout. Right. It's going to be hangout. So, uh, but uh, yeah. Ben has a, only, has a pizza, only has a pizza store a couple of nights a week. It's in one of the shuls, but uh, I, I I think that uh, it's that's a, a simon that you know okay you know this community we're only going to we only want to develop according to our perspective. When we contrast South Bend and Rochester and Scranton, is that Roch again? I haven't been in Rochester really, but I have been in South Bend as I say, and there are areas that attractive homes uh, could be sold, and you can see a person moving from a crowded. Brooklyn area to, oh, or even a Chicago street where you have to worry about alternate side parking to South Bend where you do get a bigger bang for your buck. Scranton around the yeshiva, it's, 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 it's still very much Joe Biden land. Yeah, but not, not where, not where the rest of the Jews live. Where the shuls are, it's very nice. Mm-hmm. So very, very beautiful houses, some of them. So, so you do have the potential there for people, and you say Chabad is building up in Scranton, not in Scranton, Wilkesbury, in Wilkesbury, which again should tell people who aren't familiar with the Northeast. These so that's three, there's a whole bunch of cities, the small these three cities. towns. They are there's a, a quite a distance between them, but they were known as sort of like a triumphant of a yeah, city, just like just not, right. It was it was Kingston, Scranton, and Wilkesbury, Wilkesbury as it's called. Those three are sort of like. That they sort of come together as as one city almost. So Wilkesbury is where the Chabad ever are. Yeah. I know Memphis. Does Memphis have a kind of strong Chabad? No, Chabad has started to sort of have steps in Memphis. They've been there for you know uh, ten, fifteen years, twenty years. But they sort of work. They sort of recognize that they are always the second or third fiddle. I think again Nashville, of course, which uh, you know the whole shul was developed by Reposner, who was a, a tremendous Chabad scholar. He took part, of course, in the magnificent translation of the Tanya that, of course, your uncle uh, wrote the incredible introduction to. So, as you know, Zalman Posner was also from that 
first order. And here he was. I could tell you, though, that, Zal- that, that Rav Zalman was uh, very much a, uh enlightened Chabadsker. I could tell you that um, uh, I was, tra- that I might have told the story on this platform before, but as I was going to my 10th grade stint in Ner Yisrael, after barely surviving my ninth grade, Rav Nota and Rav Menachem Greenblatt, who was the Rav of the Aguda in St. Louis, uh, Rav Yankov Greenblatt, who I mentioned before, his younger brother, Rav Yale, and myself were all part of a uh, station wagon that was owned by my father uh, that was going to drive to Baltimore with Rav Nota as our Balagola. And the car broke down at a, at a, at a, right by a gas station in Nashville. And Rav Nota called my father, Lashola. And my father and Rav Nota, actually my father discovered an uh, African-American fellow who was the Mozart of car mechanics, who was able, he wasn't a young fellow, but had the magic touch and would do it for very cheap. So Rav Nota called my father, he was four hours, three and a half, four hours away. My father was going to pick up Rav Nota's car, which was much smaller than our station wagon, and drive the mechanic and himself to get the car fixed. To Instead of having a, a local mechanic, Rav Nota was worried, was going to rip us off, we were going to get our mechanic from Memphis. And who's going to bring the mechanic? Ramire Kivalevich is going to bring the mechanic. Meanwhile, we were there, and there happened to have been a cemetery that was right on, on the top of the hill, right near this uh, Esso station. We, Rav Nota went, and he had a safer with him, and he was sitting under there. But bef- and, and we were all, like, at Rav Nota's feet. You know, Rav Nota was, like, sort of giving us some sort of shear there in the cemetery. And w- we didn't realize that he had made a call in the gas station to Rav Posner. Well, about 45 minutes or an hour later, and we are just getting comfortable under those trees in the cemetery, uh, Rabbi Posner pulls up and uh, we all pack into his car and we go to the show and Rabbi Posner wanted to show Rav Nota the mikvah and what the Helmitzer and again what the Helmitzer had been had Paskinder and been Machria he was known as the Taharas Yomtev uh, if you if you ever want to see one of the most prolific Hasidic published self-publishers then he is he's up number one but the Helmitzer who was the author of these of these massive tomes, was also the mikvah expert around America. Whether it was San Francisco, he visited them, and he felt a chov kodosh. He felt that he had a responsibility to nebuch all the women and all the babies that were going to be born, that they should actually be a mikvah tahara gilchosa, and therefore, because otherwise they're still nidois, and there's going to be a whole door of tmeim. So he was going to, the helmetzer, uh, was going to fix all the mikvahs. So we know Chabad is very careful, as you know, about how they build their mikvoyas. Uh, and the mikvah in Nashville was no exception. And the helmets are had kindness on how that mikvah was built. So Rav Nota, the Rav Posner, wanted to share, and again, I'm, I'm 14 years old, and I'm listening how Rav, Rav the, again, you talked about, yes, last week about you reading the Sri Deyesh, 
in the uh, library. I can tell you I was there when Rav Nopta and, and Rav Posner were talking about what the helmet sir had said. And Rav Nopta, every single point, Rav Nopta was mavatel, he says, that mensch is an amoritz, like he was saying that, that he he was saying how the helmets was wrong on all different studies because Rav Nota had helped put that mikvah uh, together. So I remember that wonderfully. And, and what struck me was, because later I, I recognized the sectarian aspect of Chabad, is that here was Rav Nota anti chosa to the extreme, just schmoozing and learning and, and talking about Inyan uh, Negeya, uh, uh, so everything with with Reposner. So that's a, a real sign of the of the out the door, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. When you know, when push comes to shove, when the car breaks down, you know, <laughs> and that itself showed something. He knows that Ravnota is, is, is at some gas station, fifteen miles out of town. He's going to come and not going to let him sit there, and he's going to bring him. And and and, and this. by the way, I, I can tell part two of the story when my father Ovashelam showed up uh, and. And the, the mechanic fixed the car within two minutes. He two actually, minutes. Within two minutes, he had the car fixed. However, Ravnata was worried, and we all packed into, not the station wagon, but the much, much smaller sedan, and we made our way. And that, of course, is another story, which I can save for another time. There are some out of towns like New Orleans which and, and Nashville, which are strong club of a... Uh, Camps. They moved in there. In other words, Chobave is sort of like you know. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It could be they peaked the. They're sort of like the cuckoo bird in a way. You know, there's something that is built up, and you know, but it's still looking for something. And Chobave can represent a type of Yiddish guy that they feel could be appealing to those places. And why you guys don't go out of town anymore? So therefore, you want to be modern? You're limited in scope. Who you're going to get as a modern rabbi? Yeah. So let me talk about. That's why I want to give you the asterisk for a while. One of the most unusual Rosh Hashivas in the United States was sending his students there, and they were having success. I'm talking about, of course, about uh, uh, Rabbi Sroll Chait from Farakaway. They were going out of town. Going out of town. Yes, they were. And they still might have out of town in Richmond. And- right, in Richmond and Seattle. The Richmond and, Richmond and Seattle benefited greatly. And again, you know, Rav Chait is a Rizidik in Talmud Chacham, a, a Maimonidean for, for the ages. Yes. We've never discussed, I don't think we ever discussed Shakinism here. We should discuss it sometime. <laughs> and, and, and his students tended to the, to the highly intellectual, and yet they, they weren't necessarily the button They're down. They're only allowed to be intellectual, not allowed to be emotional. That's part of Shakinism. Yes, right. But they, but they weren't the button down Chofetz Chaim guy. No. And yet they have been they have been successful in right in in places like Richmond, like Richmond, Virginia, and in Seattle, and they were willing to go out there and and really make a big really make a big difference. So besides besides Chovei and Rabbi Chay, I know this is still happening in either of these places, but most out of town places now are have uh, Lubavitch and Chavetz Chaim, which they test each other, and uh, they are the. The yeshivas and the the, the the movements would stand out of town. I, I think we want to appeal for our listeners for any of these out of town areas back in town too. That uh, Rav Yisak Gabriel, myself, we can we are ready. We are ready to be brought in. We're ready to move for the yeah. trap. Well, well, I don't know. You've yeah, got right, Anche, right? You, you've got Anche Palisades, you know, and okay. I've got I've got this Hashkocha job at Abel's and Hyman, which. 
I don't know if it I can. It has to be a lucrative position. <laughs> I don't know if I could give it up. I mean, where else could I spend my Arab Shabbos close to the cooking of the most succulent sausages in the, I would say, in the world, probably, and still be able to have the time uh, and the energy to speak to but we could be available, any of you out-of-town places, or maybe even in-town places, if you would want the traveling roadshow, the Rizcha Daraisa comes alive. <laughs> We're ready to come out. We'll come out there, even on a weekday. There are Rizcha heads from, I am getting emails, and, and as, as Rabbi Yosef Gabriel as well, and WhatsApp nods from people all over, you risk ahead. We're ready to come out you there. You also hire us to come in by Zoom. <laughs> I see. That, <laughs> at, a, at a much discounted price. Right. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you, Mitzvah Shem. Take care. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 